for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. So we're in this series called Shape for Glory Through Mission. And we talked about four foundations. Now we've moved to five resolutions. We hit the second resolution and we pretty much just stopped, you know. Uh, hopefully we didn't ground to a halt. Uh, hopefully that's not what's happened. But when I got to this Shape My Life, the second of the five resolutions, I just, throughout my time in preparing these sermons, just felt like the Lord was telling me, you need to spend some time here. This is so appropriate for the stage of life that our church is in. I know everyone is not at the same stage, but hear me, the, the mass corpus of our congregation is so young, and it, it, it's such a time that people do not need to be left feeling they are on their own. But parents need to seek out help and encouragement from the church to do what God's called them to do. And so I wanted to take some time on this second, um, on this second uh, resolution. And, and here's kind of the, the whole big idea of this, supposedly this sermon, which has now become three. Let me share it with you. It says that God shapes a life by the gospel of Jesus Christ to live in obedience to his word in character in conduct and in conversation. And so for three weeks, we've been talking about what this big idea meant. And what we've done here is we've given a resolution to each one of these to say, look, we know that what God has done in salvation and in sanctification, it's His work. But He brings us into that sanctifying work as He transforms us from within and we live out the change that He is working in us. And so these resolutions help us understand what God has done for us and what He is doing in us so we can know how we are to live out His work through our lives. And the second resolution says this, that uh, I resolve by God's grace through Holy Spirit at work in me to shape my life by God's Word, to live Christ-like in my character, in conversation, and in conduct. And obviously I've given a little definition to each of those in parenthesis there. But for sake of time, I'm going to move on. I'm going to do a brief flyby of the first three characteristics. Because we talked about there are really four characteristics of a life that is shaped by God. And the first characteristic was this. That a life shaped by God's word places Jesus as the center of the home. Or as the center of the family. We talked about that in verses 7 through 9. Verses 10 through 15 we looked at the second characteristic. Which said that a life that is shaped by God's word lives as a steward of life. And not an owner. And here's kind of how we identify the purpose that stewardship serves, uh, uh, that the stewardship serves uh, in our life in following Jesus. And we simply said this, that faithful stewardship of life unites all of life that it might all honor one master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what stewardship does for us. The third characteristic that we looked at was this, a life that is shaped by God's word holds a singular focus to trust God, and to obey His Word in all circumstances. 
And we identified that the fruit that this single focus produces within us by simply saying this, that internal gospel transformation brings about external change through obedience that results within us in increasing joy even though strife may compound all around us. So what God is doing within us is not determined by or dependent upon what's going on around us but rather by his faithfulness to us. And we also said this, we identified one of the leading causes that prevents us from following God in life change by saying this, that holding to the things that this world offers prevents you from taking hold of that which God wants to give you. We just talked about how in life we have to release our desires and wishes and and so often we try to put those in opposition to God's will, which is not biblically sound, but rather to surrender our lives to God. And so often, the things that we hold in our life, sometimes God takes them away, but sometimes God redeems them and shows us how He just wants to use them for His glory. And the point was simply this, that regardless of what it is, regardless of whether it's good, if we hold to it, and not allow ourselves to take hold of that for which God is wanting to lead us in, to, to, to give to us, then we replace God's will with our own, no matter how good it may be. So we talked about that life that is shaped by God's Word, holding that singular focus of trusting God and obeying His Word. Well, today we move to the fourth characteristic of a life that is shaped by God. And let me give you the characteristic and we'll dive right in in Deuteronomy 6.20. A life that is shaped by God's word defines its worldview by God as the only source and strength for life. A life that is shaped by God's world, word, excuse me, defines a worldview with God as the only source and strength for life. Now, I presume that most of you are familiar with the word worldview, but if you're not, let me just give a couple of sentences of explanation. What I intend to mean by worldview is simply the way that you look at, the way you perceive, the way you understand, and the way you interpret. In other words, give meaning for your life because of what you've perceived. Everything in this world, from your own identity to the identity of countless numbers of people who have been and are and will be, and to those who are around you, to the events that occur, to the relationships that you have, everything about life is included in your worldview. And what I'm saying is this, that God's Word defines our worldview. There is nothing that we know of life that we do not allow God's Word to define for us. And so that's where we find ourselves. Let's go to verse 20 of Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to read verses 20 to 25 for us, and then I'll uh, continue on with the sermon. Verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, What is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, 
that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. If you went back into verses 6 through 9, you would realize that what Moses is doing here is he is returning to further explain how the people were to teach and to train or how they were to lead their families and ultimately to lead their lives. Everything in life is perceived, is viewed, and interpreted through this one lens. And here's the lens. It is God's saving and redeeming work that provides the narrative that defines all of life. God's saving and redeeming work provides the narrative, the grand story through which all things are understood in life. You see, Moses is not telling us to create moments to tell the same story over and over again. Now, I'm not saying we should never do that because the first sermon that I preached on Shape My Life, I simply said this, that repetition breeds remembrance. The more we hear it, the more likely we are to remember it. And one of the best ways to teach our children is just to say the same things over and over and over again. And when our kids say, Mom, Dad, would you stop saying that? You say, Yes, I will when you start doing it consistently and regularly and don't mess up doing it right I mean let's just say I'm going to keep in other words I'm going to keep saying it however long I need to and when you see me with your eyes closed you're going to hear it right but what Moses is talking about here he's not saying this create a moment so you can tell the same story over and over and over again and while we acknowledge the value of repetition to help foster our remembrance really Moses is saying something counter to that now or in addition to that because if that's all we ever do all we will ever produce is good little religious beings and that's one of the greatest ills of our day we've created good little religious people we go to a place and we tell the same story over and over and over again. And when we walk away from that place, the story makes no difference in our life. So what is Moses saying? He's saying this, that every moment of life has the same story applied within it. So while this is a starting point You crack it open so that it can spread into the whole of life. And all of a sudden, the saving work of God becomes the defining narrative for all of life. That's what he's telling them. You should live in such a way so that the gospel of Jesus Christ defines everything that you experience, that you understand, and that you perceive in this life. That's the story of salvation, the Exodus event in the Old Testament. It's God's redeeming work in the hearts and the lives of the children of Israel as the gospel is for us today. We must tell our children of our personal faith in God so they see how much and how real it's getting worked out within us. 
You see, God's word through the gospel shapes our understanding of life as it is applied within every moment of life. And I do believe that this is what he was getting at in the first verses, and he's bringing it back to drive it home here. It's got to be a part of that rhythm of life. You shouldn't have to only run to one place to tell this story, but in every place you find yourself, in every relationship in which you find yourself, in every practice in which you find yourself, the gospel should be the defining narrative for what you're doing, how you're doing, why you're doing, and the glory from which will come what is taking place in your life. It is the all-consuming story of our lives, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, kids should see modeled in dad and in mom a faith that leads them to ask more questions for more explanation because kids are naturally curious, are they not? Obviously, some of them are more verbal in their curiosity, and some of them are more experiential, like you just walk into the garage and they got the power saw running, you're like, oh, you know, don't do that, you know. And then some are quieter in that, but they're seeking it out, figuring it out, trying to understand as they explore it, right? So whatever the means may be, we should model in our lives what we want our children to most desire greater explanation of. Because kids take interest in what parents love. Children take interest naturally. Let me try that again. Kids take interest naturally in what parents love. You see, children learn to love Jesus by watching dad and mom love Jesus. And this whole idea of what do you teach and, or what's taught and what's called, I would say this, that godliness must be taught, but it will be more remembered and comfortable, familiar when it is caught. When it is caught. Consider what Moses tells them to teach and train their children. Beginning in verse 21 through about 24, he says this. Parents, teach your children about the reality of sin and how only God saves from sin. You tell them we were slaves in Egypt. You tell them that there was an evil slave driver master that not only demanded that we perform for him, but he took away every resource that we had enabled to perform for him and still raised the demand upon us. In other words, sin is a crushing, cruel master and it takes away everything that might be a natural resource for you just so it can crush you in deeper sin. But God is a mighty Savior. And where sin had enslaved us, God found us. And He came in with unbridled power. And He saved us. He saved us. As a matter of fact, He trash-talked to Pharaoh a little bit in the midst of it. Why? Because He was demonstrating His power and he tells this, he says, tell them of the great and the mighty power of God to deceit, to defeat. I did that in the first service too. To defeat sin for us, but also in us. 
Because he says, he says, he walked into Egypt and he sent a man who had a major stuttering problem and said, don't worry, I made it, I'll fix it. And he sent his stuttering tongue to Pharaoh to speak with authority to the ruler of the known world, the God of the age, Pharaoh himself. And in speaking to Pharaoh, he told him the words of God. Pharaoh said, yes, no, yes, no, yes, yes, no, yes, no. Okay, and God said, no, the answer is yes. Ten times it tells us. Pharaoh said no to God. And Moses said, wrong answer. And the plagues demonstrated the power of God and the saving of his people. Tell your children about that. You ever told your children these stories? Look, you don't have to look outside the Bible for the best stories of life. I'm telling you, they're here. Crickets came through and ate everything. And then the water turned to blood. You know, I mean, if you've got a little boy with a vivid imagination, set him free in the Word of God. And watch him. Watch him run and grow. Captivate your children's heart with a God who is so majestically glorious that they cannot contain it, but they will not cease to drink from the fountain. And let their imaginations run wild with His glory. Why? Because Moses says, tell them how mighty and powerful God is. Tell them how God leads us and how He guides us. And for you and I today, we understand that the Spirit of God is living within us. Parents, do your children know how the Spirit of God leads you through the Word of God on a daily basis? Do you talk about these things openly? Honestly, your children are going to be brought up to believe that something's wrong with them internally because God's speaking to them, but they have no way to define what's happening because they don't know what it means for the Spirit of God to speak to them if mom and dad aren't telling them that God lives within us by His Spirit and He talks to us. He talks to us. And yes, it's through His Word But His Spirit is illumining, is bringing the Word to light so that we can understand it within us. Here's something to tell them. Tell your children that God is good. Tell your children that God is only good. Tell your children that God is always good. Or they will be tempted to believe what has so often tripped us up. That God's not always good. You ever been tempted to believe that? That not only God is good, there are other things in this life that are good. And they are equally good with God. And so we should hold them with equal priority or equal value with God. Okay, God's good, but so are these things. So I just need to make a choice of which good I want. Tell them that God is always good. Or they'll think when times get hard in life and strife compounds all around that God must not be good. So it must be something that I did to to deserve God's bad. No, 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 tell him that God is good, that he's only good, and that he's always good. Why? Because this is the God that the Bible reveals to us. Tell him that God saves so that we might walk in obedience with him, that we might might know fellowship. He didn't just get us out to try and figure it out on our own, but he brought us in to feast at his table, to live as children of the king with the Father. 
So talk to them about what it means to enjoy fellowship with God and to commune with God and to talk to God and know that he hears us and to listen because he speaks. Talk to them about what that means and how that works and how all of our communion, communication with God is to grow our communion with God as we worship Him. And talk to them about how important it is to live in obedience by God's power daily and for all of our life. Parents, I can't help but say that most of this sermon is focused with you. Let me put it kind of at you. But of course, I'm a parent as well. And, but I think it's applicable to all of life. Because you don't just have to be a parent to understand the role of parenting. We, we all had parents, have parents. Many of us will be parents. At the very least, we know parents. And helping us to understand how God shapes a life helps us to prepare for how we expend this life to invest it in order to hand off life to another generation. You see, parents, what I want to say to you today is this. The home remains the single greatest influence in a person's life, either for good or for ill. I'll get to that in a moment. The home remains the single greatest influence in a person's life. And so I want to talk about this faith development in our children for just a moment. The book Soul Searching was a book written in response to the findings of the National Study on Youth and Religion. This was a study that was um, uh, undertaken and began in 2001 by the Department of Sociology from Notre Dame and some sociology professors from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. It's a very famous um, uh, study And it began in August of 2001. It's actually funded all the way through December of 2015. But Soul Searching was written by the uh, Christian Smith, the uh, sociologist from UNC Chapel Hill, who helped lead the study. And this was just some of the findings that they responded to. And listen to one significant summary conclusion. And I didn't title it that. The book actually titled it that. But here's one significant summary conclusion from the National Study on Youth and Religion. The single most important social influence on the religious and spiritual lives of adolescents is their parents. Is their parents. Now, I'm going to read a, a quote. It's a little longer quote, so stay with me. I'm going to make a few comments in the midst of it, uh, but I'll let you know when I'm actually reading the quote and making my own commentary. The quote says this. One of the key themes of this book, talking about soul searching, is that parents are normally very important in shaping the religious and spiritual lives of their teenage children, even though they may not realize it. It seems that many parents of teens rely primarily on the immediate evidence of the overt attitudes, statements, and sometimes behaviors that their teenage children dole out to them on a daily basis in order to estimate their current level of parental influence. And I'm sure this is a commentary. And I'm sure that so many do that because adolescent attitudes and statements and behaviors are so stable and reliable, right? So it's a good measuring stick for us as parents to determine whether we're being a good mom or dad, right? Lighten up. Come on, lighten up. No, it's not. All right, I'm quoting again. 
Many of the attitudes and statements that teenagers communicate to their parents do not exactly express great admiration and gratitude for and readiness to listen to, to emulate, or freely obey their parents. What? Imagine that. Many parents, therefore, appear to come to the conclusion that they have lost their influence in shaping the lives of their teenage children, that they no longer make any significant difference. But for most, this conclusion is mistaken. Teenagers' attitudes, verbal utterance, and immediate behaviors are often not the best evidence with which to estimate parental influence in their lives. For better or worse, most parents, in fact, still do profoundly influence their adolescents, often more than do their peers, their children's apparent resistance and lack of appreciation notwithstanding. The influence often also includes parental influence in adolescents' religious and spiritual lives. Simply by living and interacting with their children, most parents establish expectations, define normalcy, Model life practices, set boundaries, and make demands. All of which cannot help but influence teenagers for good or for ill. Most teenagers and their parents may not realize it, but a lot of research in the sociology of religion suggests that the most important social influence in shaping young people's religious lives is the religious life modeled and taught to them by their parents. Now, I don't know if these people are Christians or not. This is a scientific study, and it's written in an academic manner. Well, actually, to interpret an academic manner, still pretty. I had to read it a number of times to get it for myself. My point is this, friends. The home remains the single most influential structure or influence in the life of children. It didn't start with sociology. You know why I read this? I read this to make two points. Number one, it reinforces what I'm trying to say today in a helpful way, in a kind of hilarious way. But number two, in our day and time, we're more apt to accept what scientists tell us than we are what God's Word says to us. We believe that the empirical method of scientific study is of greater credence or credibility than the revelation of God's Word. I'm not opposed to science, friends, but science is limited at best by finite knowledge. And what I want to say to us is this. Thousands of years before the national study on youth and religion came out, God in His Word wrote this, that the home is the greatest influence to shape the lives of children. That's what he's telling us. That's what he wants us to know. And not only to shape their lives, but to shape it for godliness and for righteousness. You see, I I commend this study because I show a separate study as well that parents do not believe this about the home. They don't believe their influence about their home. Russ Rankin works for Lifeway Research, one of the largest, most influential research agencies in in North America today. And he wrote an article in May of 2013 titled this, Religious Convictions Not Among the Most Desired Parental Traits. And here's what he said. Recent research shows that most Americans believe good mother and fathers must be loving, supportive, and protective. 
But few see the necessity of parents having a commitment to Christianity or religion. Say all you want. Research shows that across the board, people don't believe it. They don't believe it. What I'm laboring for today is not whether or not you trust science or theology, but I'm laboring for you to to believe God's Word in your role in the lives of your children. And even more than that, because my point is not just be a good mom and dad. My point is this, be godly, because that is the only way you will raise and influence godly children. You see, I don't know many parents who would say this. No, just a little bit of religion and my child will be good. I know there are people out there, I've read articles that quote them. But in 25 and a half years of ministry, my own personal experience, I've witnessed many many who are parents and who would prioritize everything else above faithfulness to Jesus and then wonder why their kid wanted to do nothing or wanted nothing to do with Jesus or with the church. In my experience, I've witnessed many who hold such a tight demand for right performance from their kids, focusing only on wrong behavior and never practicing forgiveness in the home. And the kids end up hating Jesus and hating church because they hate mom and dad. And oftentimes what will happen is they'll just end up hating Jesus and church because they can't get rid of mom and dad. So that's the way they manage it. In nine years of ministry, I've witnessed many who will take their kids to church, but they won't be engaged themselves. They'll stop the car long enough for the kid to get out. And then they act devastated when there's some sort of moral collapse or failure going, I took them to church. That's this, friends. That's creating a place to tell the same story over and over again. And hoping somehow it takes root when nothing else about all of life has anything to do with the grand narrative of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now then, I've also witnessed this many times in my experience. Parents who lead their family to follow Jesus, who engage faithfully in the church and watch their kids and lead their kids to love and to follow Jesus as imperfect as they continually are. There is no guarantee because kids become adults. And Scripture teaches, and we have plenty of, shall we say, each of you becomes a testimonial. You grow up and become real people, whatever that means, adults. You make your own decisions. You go your own way. But everything that we can do as parents should be focused on pointing our kids to Jesus at all times and in all of life. And might I just give you some encouragement? This is so important for our church because so many of you are first generation Christians. What I mean by that is you didn't grow up in a Christian home. Or maybe you grew up in a home that didn't become Christian until after you got out from under its principal influence. Well, let me tell you this. You do not have to have begun in a Christian home to start one. Because Jesus starts and builds Christian homes. Jesus is the only one who starts and builds Christian homes. And even if you are the first generation of a godly home, Jesus will be sufficient 
to establish your home in godliness. I want to encourage you in that today. And then I want to ask you this. Consider the way you live your life. Do you believe that your kid needs religion? Or do you believe that they need Jesus? Because that will determine how you live your life. That will shape the way that you live. What narrative are you living? What narrative are you modeling? What narrative are you teaching to your children that will define how they view their life and the whole world? The whole world. Let me give you a passage from the book of Proverbs, chapter 6, verse 20 to 24. And in the first seven chapters of Proverbs, I'll give you a little insight. It's talking about wisdom. And essentially, it's talking about the eternal nature of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when it talks about wisdom, it's really talking about Jesus. And in this passage, you're going to hear two words, commandment and teaching. And those two words, you can substitute faithfully understanding what's being said with the word Jesus. Okay? So listen to me as I read. Proverbs 6, verse 20 to 24. My son, keep your father's commandment. And forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. Hmm. I wonder what he was thinking when he wrote that. Maybe he was thinking back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light. And the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. To preserve you from the evil woman. From the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Let me stop there and just simply say this. Scripture doesn't show a sexual harassment in that verse. But rather... It's playing off this idea of the temptress, of the woman of the night, if you will, who seduces you out of the light into the darkness that you might, what they call adultery, but ultimately is idolatry against God. So it's using this visual language that we can understand to explain how, uh, how the lack of God's wisdom leads us away from living for God. You see, parents, God places the responsibility upon you to teach by your words, by your conversations, and by your counsel, to train by the structure that you provide and the example that you model, to lead your child toward godliness through God's truth by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me just say this, the church can help, the church should encourage. And I'm not talking about the church in its organizational structure, but rather in its organic activity. Your relationships with one another, the very essence of the church should help you. You should lean on one another to seek counsel and wisdom and understanding. And honestly, just to confess your sins, because as parents, we commit a lot of sins in the parenting act, right? And if we're honest with ourselves, we really don't want to acknowledge those. But our children even need to hear us go, Daddy was wrong. And I'm sorry. And I need you to forgive me. And then I need you to obey me. Right? Because those are both biblical truths. But the gospel leads us 
into. See, when our conversation and our counsel faithfully testifies to God's redeeming work, it penetrates our lives to produce a whole joy through obedience. God brings forth through our lives by the gospel the righteousness that he has placed upon our lives in the gospel. So what God has done for us on the cross in reconciling us in relationship to him, saving us from our sin, he is also working out in us by the gospel. It's called sanctification, making us more like Jesus. And parents, here's, I want to give you this little bit of application in this. If, if I were to go back and look from the beginning of Genesis and come up to where we are in Deuteronomy and apply that to you today, I would say this to you, that we acknowledge God as the one who speaks among gods who are silent. Who the one who has no form, but he has a voice, right? And he's also the God that hears. We've learned these characteristics of God. And I want to say to you that the principle instrument, the principal tool through which you need to lead your family, train your children, is your voice. It is your voice that needs to define these realities for your children. It is your words with your voice clothing them that shapes their understanding, that shapes the way they see the world through the grand narrative of the gospel of Jesus Christ leading us into the truth of God that provides for us the light for all of life. Just as Jesus leads us as the great shepherd because we are his sheep and we what? No his voice. Fathers, you are the first pastor of your home. And the principal way through which you lead that home should be your voice. It should be known. It should be trusted. Your voice should be equally, hear me parents, because there is one commandment that our children have until such a time that they leave our protective and provisional care. And here's the defining commandment for them. Children, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. That's it. All the other commandments are ours to teach and to train them. And it is our voice that should be their principal, not their only, but their principal source of authority in their life. They should equally be comforted by our voice. And if need be, Fear that voice, knowing that we are laboring, just as his word says, the way of life comes through reproof, that we are laboring not just for them, but for godliness in them. Godliness in them. So your kids should regard your voice like none other, because it will be the one part of you that they will never be able to get rid of. They will hear it when they want to. <laughs> And when they don't want to. Right, moms? I know, I know y'all have that intuitive nature that does that. I hear my mother all the time. Right? It's your voice. Commandments and the teaching. Characteristic number four, a life that is shaped by God's word. It defines a worldview with God as the only source and strength for life. I'll tell you one family story and I've tried, to, I've tried to keep these to a minimum. We'll continue to do so because I don't want you to think that I believe my family was perfect. I'm part of the family. Remember that and you'll remember the family's not perfect. But in all their imperfections, my parents did a really good job. That's my evaluation at my age today. It wasn't always my evaluation. 
but it is today, post-20. I remember one time our parents called us together in the room. I have a brother and a sister, so there were five of us in the room. And they had been given a gift of money. And they sat us down. And I, to this day, I don't really remember or know. I don't know that I ever knew why they brought us into the room to even ask this question instead of just using the money however they were going to use it. But they said, we've been given a gift of money and we want to seek your counsel and input on how we use it. And the best I can remember, they said this, we, we've got some, I don't know if it was $100 or 10000 I have no idea what the sum of money was, and it really doesn't matter, but here's what they said. We have some debt that we know we need to pay off, and this money would allow us to pay that debt off and have a little left, but mostly just pay the debt off. We could do something fun with it and just go on a great vacation and go, you know, spend it all just uh, having fun and enjoy, and family time is good, so... That might be okay. Or if y'all have ideas for what you want to do with it, we're open to those ideas. Mom, Dad, you know how I love you. You know my heart is for you. I have an idea. You can give the money to me, and I will take care of it for the family. My brother and sister voted that idea down immediately, and we entertained the other two options. I think what they did with the money was what we, or what we, I think what we decided, I know this is what they did with the money, but I think what we decided would probably be best after some counsel from God's word and some prayer and talking about stewardship of life, they said, you know, we're going to pay this debt off and we will pray that we'll be able to save up enough money to take a family vacation and to be able to do some things like that that are fun and we'll have fun at home and things like that. But we believe this is what God is leading us to do in this situation. I tell that story because not because we paid off debt or didn't go on vacation or anything like that. I just tell that story to remind this. Those kinds of remembrances for me are just things that come back to me at the craziest of times. Like when I'm preparing sermons. And when I'm thinking about how my parents shaped my life through a godly home. And the influence that I cannot get away from, not to think more highly of them, but to think more on Jesus Christ. And parents, that's why God has put you in the home. You see, the focus of these verses is this, that we lead ourselves and our children, those we're responsible for, to remember God. To remember God. To remember the gospel. And what is the gospel? Let me give you two verses as I conclude today. The first one is 1 Peter 3.18. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also died, suffered, excuse me, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. You hear that? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. You see, the gospel is that Christ suffered once for all. Not that salvation is a one and done deal, so God will leave us alone. And salvation produces a transformation that impacts every part of our life. A person is changed instantly in their standing before God uh, eternally. But in this life, not everything is instantly changed in the physical realm. 
But it tells us that Christ was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive by the Spirit. And what I want to say to you is this is the essence of the Christian life. That, that, that though everything doesn't change in the physical realm for us, we have had a massive transformation as our spirit has been made alive unto God. Listen to this, Ephesians 2, 5. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, by faith in Christ's death, the Spirit gives us life to put to death the sinful deeds of the flesh that we might live in accordance with the Spirit who is living within us. And as we live in accordance with the Spirit, the gospel, this hope that Christ suffered once for all, in the flesh, that he might make us alive in the Spirit. As the Spirit lives within us, the remembrance and hope in Jesus to walk in obedience to his truth by the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel begins to shape us. You see, the Christian life is an exercise of faith. It's not an acknowledgement or recognition of your moral capability or what you can presently accomplish. And if following Jesus doesn't daily lead you to think, to believe, to act, to conduct, to speak, or to hold an attitude that you find hard or difficult or sometimes even counter to what comes natural to you, then you're not following Jesus. So many people walk away from Jesus because it's just not easy so they must not be good at it. You're horrible at it. I can promise you that. But Christ is faithful. And what he's doing when his word counters your belief, your thinking, your acting, or whatever in conduct, conversation, uh, uh, or character, when it, when it confronts you, he's laboring because the Spirit is alive within you. And he's coming to life and he's putting to deed in the flesh the things that are of your sinful nature that the Spirit might gain more ground in you and command your life in such a way that you would walk in righteousness and in godliness. The spiritual life is a war. It's not a vacation. And it is a battle that is being waged through the spirit that is alive, but through the flesh that is threatening. And here's what I would say. Jesus killed the flesh, so you can too. And he gave you the spirit by which to do it. Will you? Will you? So where does that leave us today? It leaves us before the throne. It leaves us in a place where we, were ult- where we are ultimately and only fully dependent upon what Christ has done. You go, Pastor, how does this relate to all the parenting talk we just gave? Because Moses' whole point, the whole point of the Bible is this. If Christ is not alive in you, You cannot light a flame in your kids. Is Christ alive in you? I'm going to ask the worship team to return. And as they're returning, I want us just to take a few moments of 
of solitude, as much solitude as you can have in a room of a couple hundred people. <laughs> well, I, just, I want you to bow your head and to close your eyes and I'm not going to do anything funny or silly in this time. I'm just going to ask you to ask the Spirit of God to bring great discernment. Even if you're not a Christian today, it is acceptable and right for you to pray, Spirit of the living God, would you make discernment within me today of light and darkness, of truth and of error, and help me in this time. Christian, Very likely, as I've spoken today, the Spirit of God has been convicting you, maybe of circumstances or of situations, of words that you have used, of activities that you've engaged in, of the things in which you've been living as a way of life, in the way that you've been speaking, maybe uh, maybe not just in the words you use, but in the attitude that you're using with certain people. The Spirit's made it very specific in your heart and in your mind that this is sin and you need to stop, or that this is the direction of righteousness that he wants to lead you in today but you're hesitant you don't know if you can follow because you don't know if your faith will hold you let me tell you this it is not your faith that will hold you it is that in which you place your faith that will determine which you are held or not and that will only hold you if it's the Lord Jesus Christ would you respond today just to say Lord I lay my yes on the table and I'll follow you, whatever that means. If you're here today and you've never come to a point in your life where you've placed your faith in Jesus to become a Christian, but you know today you need to become a Christian, the Spirit has spoken to you, and you need to place your faith in Jesus to forgive you of your sins, to cleanse you of your trespasses and your unrighteousness, and to lead you. We want to invite you to do that today. Very simple prayer just says, God, forgive me. I trust in you. Lead me in your way. God answers that prayer every time in the same way. He saves without hesitation, with full joy and gladness. He wants to fill you today. Here's what we're going to do. As the worship team leads us, we're going to come to the Lord's table to partake of the cup, which represents His blood that was shed for us. To take of the bread, which represents His body was broken for us. These are the elements that remind us of Christ who suffered once for all. And as you prepare to come today, come only in faith, not in your own ability, not in the saving work of these elements because they don't, but only by faith. Come. And in your coming, say yes to what Jesus is leading you need counsel, if you need encouragement, prayer, I'll be at the front of one of the aisles. Pastor Chris will be on this side. We would love to encourage you, celebrate with you if you become a Christian today. Respond to Jesus. Respond to Jesus. And as you're ready, you come.